Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Elizabeth Holmes. On this episode of Law Junkie's Show, we'll get you caught up on the latest witnesses to take the stand in the Elizabeth Holmes trial. We'll take a look at Holmes' defense strategy, and we'll answer the question, will the prosecution call Sonny Balwani? But first, we cover in more detail in Episode 9 of Law Junkie's Show the reason there will be no audio and no video in the courtroom. The short answer is that judges find it distracting. But let's say someone were to sneak in a camera of any kind, what would be the legal consequences if the person were to get caught? And how vigorously would they pursue this person? Well, let's start with this idea that once you pass through the metal detectors of the courtroom, you are subject to the rules of the court. There may be rules for the entire section of the court. So let's say the Ninth Circuit, where the Northern District of California resides. There may be Northern District rules, and the judge himself may have rules. And in this case, Judge Davila said, no, audio or video recording. Remember, we want to have integrity in our judicial system. We already have a court reporter who is transcribing everything that is being said. Now, to the question of, what would happen? Well, the bailiff, the law enforcement, the judge, the clerks, the court reporter, everybody, the attorneys, they're all aware of the different people who are coming in, but in particular law enforcement who is there, the bailiffs and the judge. And if you are caught surreptitiously without permission of the court recording audio or video, you are subject to the laws of that court. In this case, it would be something like contempt So the judge immediately could order you to go to jail and confiscate your recording device. It could be referred to a prosecutor if you were violating some other law. So whether if in a federal court, that could be the U.S. attorney's office is going to prosecute you. No, you're going to be in federal court yourself defending yourself for surreptitiously without permission recording audio or video of the Elizabeth Holmes trial. I absolutely must be clear in saying Do not do this. Do not do that. You are subjecting yourself to penalties that could include monetary fines. It could include jail time. It's it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Don't do it. Before we heard from witnesses last week, there was some disagreement on the texts, the text messages that were going to be admissible. The judge went to his chambers to decide which text messages would be admissible. It took 45 minutes, roughly, before he came back. And the question is, 
when the judge is back there reviewing this material, is he doing this alone? Does he have assistance? How is he going about making this decision and what is he looking for? Well, judges do have people who work for them. Clerks are what they're called. And clerks are legal professionals. Usually they are recent graduates from law school. Sometimes not. Sometimes clerks just stay with a judge for a long time because they really enjoy it. So these are people with legal knowledge. Now, whether or not the judge conferred with his, in this case, Judge Davila, with his clerk or clerks, we don't know. I would suggest that often the judge will confer with clerks to have them do run a quick review of the precedent, what those cases are. That's what precedent is, is previous rulings that have come down that courts have talked about and asked to be published. So I would suggest that often he will review with his clerks what the precedent is and he himself will review the law and but he's reviewing the material and again remember when it comes to admissibility this is in the the rules of evidence federal rules of evidence in this case because it's in federal court and there are very specific rules regarding admissibility of evidence and it goes back to those two basic questions does it speak to the question at hand, does the, does the material directly speak to the, to the questions at hand? If yes, generally you're supposed to admit it. And then the second part of that question, is it something that will look bad for the defendant? And when I say look bad, I mean, will it cause a prejudice in the jury? And does it have a, and is that prejudice have any relevance to the, again, the question at hand. Now, there are lots of rules that define things like hearsay is one of the most complicated ones. Actually, most of the rest of the world has gotten rid of hearsay. Uh, the United States, of course, has kept it and it has lots of exceptions. It's actually a difficult analysis to understand hearsay. But there are lots of different pieces that relate to whether or not it's original documents and expert witnesses. These are all different issues that come into play when you when a judge decides whether or not evidence is admissible. Last week, we heard from Sudka Ganga Kedkar, who quit her job as team manager at Theranos after reporting to Elizabeth Holmes repeatedly that the product, the quality was not there. And Dr. Rosendorf was instructed by Theranos to kind of get creative with his explanations as to why the test results were what they were inaccurate. At Theranos, I felt pressured to defend the company's results to physicians, he said on the stand. Then we heard from General Mattis. Does his testimony have any more weight than anyone else's considering he's a U.S. general? Or is that just sort of an unspoken weight? Well, General James Mattis lent a lot of credibility to Theranos because he's not just another investor. He's not just a billionaire looking to make another billion. He is one of the most respected 
leaders in the United States military, I would suggest since General Schwarzkopf in the early 1990s. So he brought an air of credibility to the company. And when he walks into a courtroom to testify, he brings a level of credibility that few other witnesses have. However, under the law, he has no more credibility. There is no more weight to his testimony than any other witness. But jurors are human beings. Judges are human beings. And jurors may look at somebody like him and say to themselves, I'm going to believe what this guy says. Why would he lie? He's, he's a known truth teller. This guy has a built a lifetime reputation of being an honest broker. So that does come into play often in the minds of jurors, but in terms of the law itself, no difference from anybody else. The theme in the trial so far with the witnesses being called is that Elizabeth Holmes knew all about the problems with Theranos and the blood testing devices she was using, even using the lab equipment of other companies like Siemens behind the scenes. Let's go back for a minute to Elizabeth Holmes initially meeting with her attorneys to craft this defense. First of all, when a client such as Elizabeth Holmes comes in and sits down and we're having our conversations. When we're deciding what direction we're going to go with this, how much input would I have as Elizabeth Holmes as the client? In other words, am I sitting telling you a story and you as the attorney are calculating how this becomes a defense or is it sort of the other way around? When a client first comes in to my office, for example, it's called a client interview or PC is a, an acronym you'll hear in the legal community, potential client. So they haven't necessarily signed a fee agreement yet. That's the contract between an attorney and a client. So when they first come in, you just want to hear their story. And as you're listening to the story, you take notes, or in my case, I take notes and as do almost all the attorneys, we take notes as they come in. We have a series of questions prepared for when they come in. And we do this interview to ascertain whether or not, first of all, we even want to work with the client because there are times where you don't want to work with a client. And secondly, to your point, which is what are my defenses here? How do I defend this client? How do I win this case for my client? So yes, I walk in to that meeting and I listen to their answers and I ask follow-up questions. And one of the things that I know I do, and I'm sure many other attorneys do, although I can't speak for them, is I make sure that I tell the client, I remind them of the confidentiality in our conversation, the fact that I can't share anything that they say to me with anybody. It is protected by law. And it is critically important that they share with me all of the story, the good, the bad, the ugly, the warts, and all. I have to know what they know and what really happened to give them a proper defense. So it is an inquiry when they first come in. And typically you'll ask the client to bring documents. In this case, I can't even imagine this is so big 
I don't know that I want them to bring a lot of documents. I just want to hear their story of what happened. In this case, they're really going with two key points. One, that she really, really, truly believed in her product, that it would work eventually. Two, that Sunny Balwani, her business partner and romantic partner at the time, was abusive and controlling. How are these themes woven together to fashion a defense story? Does it even have to be a story? Does it have to make sense? Does it have to be a narrative? It doesn't have to be a story or a narrative. It's just far more effective communicating with the jurors in a way that they can understand, which are stories, narratives. Remember, the defense only has to defeat one element of the crime charged. In fraud, it is almost always going to be the intent element. And that's what we're looking at here. When they tell that story of she believed in the product, well, how could she have the intent to defraud people? It's, hey, that's part of the product development process. Can you imagine if we brought Bill Gates to trial when Windows had a blue screen of death? Your product failed. That means fraud. No, that's just not how we do it. That is what the defense is going to build around. I really... to at this moment still believe that the stronger defense is that she believed in the product. She believed in what she was doing and she believed she could do it. It just hadn't happened yet. Does that mean there is no legal distinction between tech and med tech? The law itself doesn't see a difference between tech and med tech. However, case law there may be more case law regarding med tech versus tech or vice versa that would weigh more on the judge and the jury potentially. But in terms of the law itself, blind to tech versus med tech. question from listeners. Will the prosecution call Sonny Balwani, Elizabeth Holmes' former business partner and former romantic partner, whom she's accusing of abuse, to the stand? No, they won't call Balwani. He's a defendant on charges based on the same nexus of facts. He would plead the fifth to every single question saying against self-incrimination. He has another trial. He's not going to answer questions. His attorneys, I promise you, would advise him to answer every question the same way I'm invoking my Fifth Amendment privileges against self-incrimination. So it would be a waste of everybody's time. And the prosecution knows this. And by the way, often what happens is there are negotiations behind the scenes where the prosecution's talking to other parties, the witnesses. This isn't just they call them randomly and they show up at trial. There's usually a conversation first. If they're not cooperative, then there's a subpoena issued to compel them to testify. But often the attorneys are talking 
to negotiate how it's going to happen and what they're going to talk about. And remember, depositions like we've talked about before the trial give everybody an indication of what somebody is going to say at trial, which leads them to make these decisions of who they're going to call to testify at trial. In episode eight of Law Junkie Show, we discussed that the judge said that when talking about the test results that were inaccurate, um, they could not discuss any mental anguish that occurred as a result. And you said that was appropriate because that is not what Elizabeth Holmes is on trial for. But it's kind of like tell me you have mental anguish without telling me you have mental anguish when we're discussing results like false miscarriages, false pregnancies, HIV and cancer, serious test results that were wrong. Again, you said that's that's not a part of this trial. Could that be a part of a separate trial or did that already get settled when she settled with the SEC, when Therano settled with the SEC? Those are two separate questions, really. So let's talk about this trial. And it's important to remember that this trial that we're discussing is a criminal trial in the federal court, the U.S. District Court, Northern District of California, on multiple charges of wire fraud and conspiracy to commit wire fraud. So while these people have suffered and have real, true mental anguish regarding bad test results from Theranos, that is not to the question at hand, as we discussed with the rules of evidence. Does it address the question? No. Well, then that evidence is not going to be allowed. Is it prejudicial to the jury? Yes. Well, now there's two strikes that the judge is going to look at and say that this is not admissible in front of the jury. However, should Elizabeth Holmes be convicted of these offenses, it is possible the judge would allow the victims or the patients, let me rephrase, the judge would allow the patients to potentially testify during the sentencing phase. And that that could affect the sentence that Elizabeth Holmes is given for the crimes she would be convicted of. So that is possible that due to your actions of this wire fraud, we're going to weigh that and your sentencing. It's just not part of the trial itself to see if you committed wire fraud because it doesn't relate to wire fraud. Now, the SEC charges are something completely different. And whether or not that mattered would have been part of the SEC, which I also doubt as well, because remember, that Securities and Exchange Commission, that has nothing to do with bad test results. If the FDA was going to go after them, if there were other charges that would potentially be possible in those cases, if people were going to individually sue Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes for damages that they suffered due to a bad test result, it would likely be admissible in those cases. But in this case, no. Keep listening to Law Junkie Show for the latest on the Elizabeth Holmes Theranos trial. 
And thank you for listening to Law Junkie Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. If you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, all the better. Follow us on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and visit us at lawjunkieshow.com. You can send us a message there on the contact form or at info at lawjunkieshow.com. We love your questions, comments, and welcome your ideas for upcoming episodes. Disclaimer, Law Junkie Show, including its guests and hosts, are not giving out legal advice, but discussing general legal issues. Law Junkie Show does not guarantee that the legal issues discussed are fully accurate, and it's not specific to whatever legal issues you may be experiencing. None of this advice is to be acted upon in your situation. Please seek legal advice from a licensed attorney in your jurisdiction for your individual legal matter.